Hello, everyone. What a pleasure to be here and to have the role of, uh, of chairing this, uh, this wonderful book launch uh, this evening. Um, I'd like to also uh, pay my respects to the, uh, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri uh, elders and, uh, and extend that to any First Nations people who are here tonight. Uh, you're not here to listen to me, but just briefly uh, a, a couple of words. Uh, I do teach at the Finnish School of Environment and Society at the ANU, and it was as, at an un, as an undergraduate in that school, it was called something different at the time, that Mark was one of my professors a long time ago. And so next, week after next, uh, I'm about to teach for the 12th time my first year sustainable development course. And without wanting to offend anybody in the room, it's worth bearing in mind that the people I'm normally speaking to about sustainability and sustainable development were born after the year 2000. <laughs> Not offending anybody, but have a think about that for a moment. There are two people in this room that I think were born after the year 2000, is that right? The little ones? <laughs> yeah, those two, yeah. The little ones. Um, but it's really important to think about this and to recognise, you know, we have a great class every year. We have lots of interest in sustainable development. The young people who are coming through are really concerned. You know, they are really deeply concerned about the future of the planet. And this is something that hasn't changed since I was an undergraduate, um, and I know from, uh, from well before then, as, as Thor indicated. So books like these are absolutely critical. I now head the Institute for Water Futures uh, at, the, uh, at the ANU, and as a kind of aspiring futurist, you know, I'm, I'm learning that trade, if you like. And if there's one thing that we really know, it's that having a positive vision for the future is absolutely critical to having a direction, a sense of optimism, a sense of hope and where to go. And I think that this uh, wonderful new book um, by Mark and Rod really helps us to formulate that sense of not just, you know, not only what are the problems in the world, yes, we need to understand that, but how could it be different and how could it be better? So I'm very excited to be a part of this. But my job is not to talk any longer, uh, but to introduce uh, our first speaker, Dr Richard Dennis. Uh, Richard probably doesn't need a long-winded introduction, and he's asked me not to, uh, to give a long-winded in introduction, but I'm sure many of you know of Richard as the uh, Executive Director of the Australia Institute, well-known economist, and of course the, uh, the Australia Institute has been at the forefront of continuing to challenge uh, Australian politics and society uh, to continue improve and become uh, a better society and a more sustainable society. So, um, uh, thank you so much. And uh, yes, I, in case people are confused, I used to be the executive director of the Australian Institute, and then I wasn't, and now I am again. So <laughs> it's great to be here and Thor's hammer think about recycling, because I've <laughs> been recycled. <laughs> Upcycled, I don't know, something's happened, but I'm, I'm back and it's, and it's, uh, it's great fun. Uh, well, look, let me just firstly start by saying, Mark, congratulations. Uh, you know, what a, and, and Rod, is Rod here? Oh, of course. Um, well, I, I saw Mark on the way in. Um, uh, congratulations. I mean, you know, what, a, what, a, what an important book to write at such an important time. The Path to a Sustainable Civilization. I mean, think about that. I wonder who doesn't want to be on it. Because someone doesn't. Now, this is important, right? Because someone doesn't. Because people like Mark, people like Rod have been talking about what we need to do to get on this path for quite some time. So let's be clear, someone doesn't want to be on the path to a sustainable civilization. 
Now, you might think that's ridiculous, but you almost so might have heard of that guy, what's his name, um, Donald Trump. There are people in the world that are not interested, not just in sustainability, but in civilization. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. I mean, there are people that are actually willing to break our fundamental democratic norms, our assumptions about what it is to live in a democracy with a rule of law. And unfortunately, let's face it, uh, there is a lot of money and there is a lot of power being uh, applied to ensure that we don't get on this path. But I couldn't agree more. We need to both understand the path we want to be on and explain that path to other people because while some people don't want to be on this path, the overwhelming majority of people do. They might not realise there are choices, they might not realise the consequences of staying on the path we're on, but I don't doubt for a minute the overwhelming percentage of Australians, the overwhelming percentage of people in the world actually want to be on a path like the one spelt out uh, by Rod and by Mark. But we shouldn't take for granted that we will wind up on that path because some people actually don't want to change course. Indeed, we live in a country where there are currently 114 new coal and gas mines being proposed. 114. It was 116, but you know what happened to the other two? They were accepted. They got approved. <laughs> So when this government was elected, so we're on the right track, right? <laughs> we're on the path because there's not as many new mines seeking approval as there was when this government, federal government, was elected because we've already approved a couple. And we just spent, you just spent your money, $1.5 billion of your money, to subsidise a petrochemical plant uh, in Darwin Harbour so that we can open up the Betaloo gas project. So, again, I, I, the reason I talk about this is not to be a downer. On the, on the contrary, if we want people to change course, we have to map out that course for them. And, and to be fair, uh, this is not Mark or Rod's first attempt to spell out the path. I've dabbled in it myself. But, to be clear, we can't stop doing that important work. I think, um, you know, I hate to say it, you know, your prognosis in the book is a little depressing. But you also, I think, present some very simple and I think popular uh, uh, solutions to the problem. I just don't take for granted that the problem will be solved. Now, I'm an economist, so you know, if you read this book, you might think I'm a bit of an idiot because um, there is some pretty stupid economics around. I just want to debunk some for you. Uh, and, and I think Mark and Rod do a generous job of debunking economics in this book. And as a professional economist, to be clear, I think most of my colleagues, to choose my words carefully here, talk a lot of shit. Okay? Um, but it's important influential shit, and knowing how to debunk it and knowing when to ignore it and when to not is really important. So let me just give you an example of a really important point that Rod and Mark make in the book, and that is about the absurdity of some of the assumptions that economists tend to make. But to be clear, economists don't run anything. We're patsies. We get paid by powerful people to explain things. All right? It's rhetoric. We're charlatans as a whole. Um, no, no, because we do know. Like, it's worse than you thinking economists don't know. We do know. So everyone knows that economists have got really simplistic assumptions about how humans behave and really simplistic assumptions about how the world works. And, you know, isn't it silly that we've got these simple models with these silly assumptions? And you're right. But it's worse than that, because we actually know the assumptions are a bit dumb. Let me give you a physics example. 
when you're in high school, when I was in high school a long time ago, learning about physics, usually, you know, if you think about Newtonian physics, you learn things about how cannonballs fly in vacuums. And, you know, we get a simple model of how, uh, how trajectory and uh, velocity can predict something. And it's not a perfect model, right? Everyone knows that high school physics is a simplified model, very, very simplified model. But it's not a bad model for doing some things. So, for example, the simplified model ignores air friction, right? It ignores fluid dynamics. It ignores all sorts of things, but it's still pretty good. Can you catch? No. This is not a perfect sphere. I'm not going to spill anything. But look, most of us can still use simple Newtonian physics to predict in our head. Uh, but, but you know what? That's a bit of paper, right? So is this. Ready? Catch. Let's try again. Ready? Catch. I'm really confused. Because this is a bit of paper. And under some circumstances, I had an incredibly good predictive model. But in other circumstances, it's absolutely worthless. Throw it again. Throw it again. <laughs> well, it actually went forward this time. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up in a second, but this is really important. When we use simplistic models inappropriately, they deliver, they deliver dangerously ridiculous results. Okay, we know that air friction exists. And we can ignore air friction when I'm chucking you something that's not perfectly spherical. And we can't ignore it when I'm chucking something that's flat. And I know that, and you know that instinctively. And aeronautical engineers design planes precisely because they understand that. So when economists do stupid things, like say, let's use a simple model of how a market works to create a market for koala credits, not making that up, failed, you know, hopefully failed in the Senate last week. We know. My profession knows. We know that the market for koala credits won't protect koalas. We know that all sorts of nonsensical economic stuff about if we have enough economic growth we'll protect the environment. We know that's nonsense. It's worse than we are done. It's so much worse than we are done. We know. But my profession, my former students, go out there and pretend they don't know in order to justify the otherwise unjustifiable, which is why it's so important that people like Rod and Mark debunk that sort of nonsense in books like this and show us what some realistic assumptions about the world we live on mean for us and show us some realistic ways forward. So it gives me enormous pleasure to not just spill some wine and chuck bits of paper around, but to help, to help you all uh, in launching this important book. Um, thank you, Richard. Um, wasn't expecting the, the wine to be flying around the, uh, the room. 
um, I think it's set a, an interesting precedent that uh, you know, if Richard's going to be bagging out economists, I think we could probably do a decent job of bagging out academics at the same time, but we'll, we'll maybe leave that for another, uh, another event. My great pleasure now to, uh, to introduce Mark. Uh, I'm sure many of you are here because you already know Mark, so it seems a bit uh, superfluous to be uh, doing a full introduction, um, but I think it's, uh, the, the occasion certainly uh, warrants it. Uh, Mark is an honorary associate professor in the Environment and Society Group at the School of Humanities and Languages at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. Uh, as many of you would know, Mark was originally a physicist, uh, so very much in the, in the kind of hard sciences, but then broadened out into uh, wide interdisciplinary fields, and indeed it was human ecology um, where, uh, where we first met uh, those couple of decades ago. And sustainability, of course, being the, the fundamental uh, motivation throughout uh, from 1996 to 2001, uh, Mark was Professor of Environmental Science and the founding director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney, uh, which I'll be pleased to visit uh, next week. Um, and uh, as mentioned before, he has a range of books, so this is not the first attempt. Maybe it won't be the last, but I think adds to a, a, a really strong um, intellectual and practical tradition of thinking about how we engage with the challenges of sustainability. So I'm going to hand over to Mark. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you very much, Lorraine, and uh, all the best for your Centre for Water Futures. I think it's a very exciting initiative, and you're the best person to lead it. And Richard, thank you so much for being our keynote speaker and for saying some serious things, but entertaining us at the same time. And your path to a sustainable future, both as a, an, an honest economist and as leader of the Australia Institute is doing wonderful things and to some extent counteracts the, the terrible influence of other think, so-called think tanks like the Institute of Public Affairs and the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which I also have something to say about. I'd, I'd like to thank Thor and Thor's Hammer, the team of Thor's Hammer, for hosting us here. Uh, this could not be a better place to launch our book. I hope you will, if you haven't been here before, I hope you will look at the beautiful furniture that Thor's team makes here out of recycled timber. It's just fantastic. And, and of course, uh, Thor and Thor's Hammer have recently been awarded... Um, the, um, uh, just get the names right, the Climate Cho Choice Business Awards here, and um, both for their um, waste minimisation program and also Thor for his leadership in this area. So, so congratulations, son. <laughs> the principal themes of this book are the development of a strategy and solutions to handle the underlying drivers of the environmental and social justice and peace disasters that we're facing at present. Those underlying drivers or forces, they're illustrated when you go out behind our little bookstore, you'll see a big poster on the wall, which is something I did for an international conference I attended recently. Underlying all these impacts on climate change, on deforestation, on the loss of koalas, 
on the, the poverty and social injustice that we have in the world, the threats to world peace, one, one can argue, and we do argue in the book, that these are driven primarily by two, two driving forces. And one of them is the existing economic system that Richard has spoken about, particularly as manifest in an ideology called neoliberalism. And that ideology called neoliberalism, which is all about uh, low taxes, small government, uh, leave it to the market, all that kind of thinking, and which has failed abysmally first, well, it has failed many times, but notably during the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, and more recently in the attempts at economic recovery from the COVID pandemic. And in each case, governments had to create and spend billions of dollars Australian government, hundreds of billions of dollars in, all, and in complete violation of the neoliberal principles, in inverted commas, that they claim to follow. But then they reassured us all, don't worry, when the disaster's over, we're going to go back to neoliberalism. And that's not on. And the other driver, equally or even possibly even more important, is the power of vested interests to control the nation state. So we call that state capture in the book. And some of the captors in this country and many other countries are, of course, the fossil fuel industry. We've all seen that marvelous picture of worshiping a lump of coal in Parliament House, <laughs> uh, which incidentally was supplied by the Minerals Council, and they lacquered it so that the parliamentarians wouldn't get their hands dirty. <laughs> well, they are dirty. So we argue in the book, these are the two immediate driving forces, although as the poster in the corner shows underlying them is, on the economic side, is the whole capitalist economy approach, and a range of other driving forces uh, like autocracy, oligarchs, uh, racism, sexism, all those forces. But we, we argue and, and we believe that neoliberalism and much of neoclassical economics theory that purports to support neoliberal ideologies are ready to be pushed over. And we want to join, and we are joining the team of people around the world who are, who are going to try and give a push. And I'll just mention, although this goes beyond the present book, I'm a member of an international team of scientists and economists that's been working on a research project examining critically the assumptions, some of which Richard mentioned, underlying neoclassical economics. And the more we look at it, the more we see that there is no science in neoclassical economic theory. Much of it is nonsense. I won't quite use the word that you use, Richard, but much of it is nonsense. And yet it is used to justify endless growth on a finite planet. And consumption is one of the really big issues that needs to be addressed now. And this is one of the most difficult issues because for the last few decades, people have been indoctrinated into the notion that 
GDP is a measure of well-being, although if you ask an economist, they say, of course, we don't say that. But then they continue to act as if it is a measure of well-being, and we must continue, even in the rich countries like Australia and the United States, well, rich on average, but containing considerable poverty within them. So, so these issues have to be grappled with. Now, I'm, I'm going to, that reminds me of an experience I had as a very young scientist, and it illustrates the power of vested interests. It's one illustration. I, I did my PhD in theoretical astrophysics. I, I was studying the interior of the sun, the physics of the interior of the sun. You might think that is absolutely removed from this planet, from earthly concerns. Well, after I finished my PhD, I visited someone who I learned after I, my PhD had been examined. I, I was told that he had been one of my examiners at the University of California, Berkeley. So on the way to take up a postdoctoral position in London, I dropped in in San Francisco and walked into his lab. And he greeted me and he said, well, congratulations on your thesis. My colleagues at the Livermore National Laboratory are using it to improve their design of the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> now, this was a bit of a shock, to say the least. And he, he actually, this person actually worked part-time at Livermore, and he was quite famous in the United States as leading a non-military research group within the Livermore Hydrogen Bomb Factory. And obviously he had passed my PhD thesis over to his military colleagues uh, before I'd even published any papers on it. So this set me on a different pathway. I didn't really want to do scientific research for the military or for big business for that matter. So I became involved in, in London in, in the British Society for Social Responsibility in Science. And I'm sad that um, you, some of you may know that Dr. Hugh Sadler has passed away recently. And he was one of the moving forces. He was secretary of the British Society for Social Responsibility in Science when I was there. That's when I met him the first time. So I've known him for about 50 years. Um, anyway, I returned to Australia and um, joined the ANU. And... Um, experienced another experience eventually of vested interests. After ANU I moved to uh, CSIRO and um, I was a young research scientist working in CSIRO and I set up a wind power research program and at that time CSIRO was a world leader in not in wind power research but in solar efficient buildings, passive solar uh, design and um, Trevor Lee, I think he's here somewhere, he's very active in that field. Trevor, oh yes, where are you? Over there? Hi Trevor, well done. So Trevor's been in that field for a long time and also CSIRO was a world leader in solar hot water at that time. So we're talking about um, late 1970s and um, they did research around Australia on bioenergy and so on. So I set up a research group looking at large-scale wind power and integrating into the grid. And this was before there was a large-scale wind power industry. 
The executive that ran CSIRO was not happy, and they attempted to stop me getting a grant, but due to some... Because I was young and cheeky, I managed to get round them despite their resistance and got the grant. But they had their revenge. In 1982, the CSIRO executive shut down all research in renewable energy in CSIRO across the country. And hardly anyone said a word publicly. Uh, and for the next 10 or 15 or more years, no renewable energy research was done in CSIRO. And I actually knew the man on the CSIRO executive who had, was responsible because he was the coal industry representative. I won't name him now, but he, he, he actually had the cheek after they had closed down all renewable energy research. He came up to me one day and he said, uh, Mark, um, uh, I, I want some advice on installing a small wind generator on my property outside. I'm not making this up. I mean, I was pretty young. I, I should have... I didn't really say what... You know, how it is in hindsight. You want to actually... What you should have said. But anyway. But once again, the coal industry, even before there was a commercial industry for large-scale wind power, was so terrified of renewable energy, they shut down all renewable energy research in the organisation. So vested interests have to be named and they have to be attacked. And I discussed this with a colleague who's a professor of ecological economics, and he said, Mark, look, I've written a, a paragraph of praise for your book, but honestly, your approach isn't nuanced. It isn't subtle. <laughs> ecological economics is subtle. We develop our own framework, but we don't... Make do battle with the neoclassical economists. Well, I'm afraid that's not my style. So, anyway, I'm thankful for the growth of renewable energy, which, uh, which has been fantastic, and I've had some wonderful experiences working in the field, uh, working with Ben Elliston, who's here tonight, who did some of the leading modelling um, of 100% renewable electricity for Australia, and I'm also delighted to see Andrew Blakers is here. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for coming. I'm, I'm going to actually ask all of you, except the energy experts, a question, just to get a feeling. In two, year 2009, on a global scale, fossil fuels supplied 80% of global energy, all energy, not just electricity. Now, 10 years later, renewable electricity had grown at an enormous rate. And, um, and, and as Andrew has pointed out in many articles, it could, it could grow much faster, and I hope it will. So in 2019, I want some guesses, not from Andrew because he knows the answer, not from Ben, but I want some answers. What do you think is the percentage of global, total global energy use from fossil fuels? So it was 80% in 2009. Let's have some numbers. What, what might it be? The same. The same. Oh, you're all too smart. <laughs> that is exactly right. How could it be possible that with the huge growth of renewable energy, in 2019, 
fossil fuels still supplied 80% of global energy, total global energy. Well, the answer is the growth in consumption of energy, and much of that growth was in transport energy and combustion heating, and almost all of that was fossil fuel. So, so the challenge isn't just to transition from fossil electricity to renewable electricity. The challenge is also to transition transport and combustion heating to electricity. And I published a paper recently in Climate Policy doing some really high school level calculations showing that if global consumption in energy continue to grow at the same rate as it did before the pandemic, then it was almost certainly impossible on a global scale for renewable energy to catch up and replace all global fossil fuel by 2050. And that's a worry because of the danger of crossing climate tipping points. And it's very hard. So that's one way to argue that we have to reduce consumption. And if we want to reduce consumption, we have to throw out the economists who keep saying uh, we have to have continued economic growth in the rich countries. So that's, that's one of the key arguments, really, in, this, um, in, in our book, that, that we have to come to terms with that. So I'm not going to talk for too long. I just want to, to say that, just one moment, that the book sets out a number of strategies for both dealing with vested interests and for dealing with neoliberalism and the worst of the neoclassical economists. And part of that is, of course, supporting the best of the neoclassical economists with their fantastic books like Econobabble that uh, Richard wrote. And Richard has an excellent article, by the way, in this month's monthly, uh, rubbishing the notion that we can simply handle inflation by in endlessly increasing interest rates. There are better ways, he points out, of handling inflation. Of course they are. So the book explains and sets out some strategies for dealing with these vested interests, and they are doable, but the problem is, as somebody said, the path to a sustainable future is a thorny path. Well, there are several paths, and they intersect from time to time, but they are thorny, they are rough. As a bushwalker, uh, I would say these are ones that you really have to scramble through in some points, but they are doable, and in fact, some of the so, so there is an awareness growing in the community that we have to deal with vested interests. So, for example, I'm, I'm really delighted that the Australian Greens have policies for controlling political donations and electoral expenditure, for the revolving door appointments where a Minister for Resources or Energy can retire into a very highly paid job in the resources or energy, of fossil energy industry. And that has happened from both major political parties in this country in the not too distant past. We, we have to deal with the concentration of media ownership. And we've done this before in other countries like Sweden and some of the states even in the, what you'd have to call now the disunited states, some of those states actually have policies 
where elections are at least partially funded by, by the state government and they're not handed over entirely to vested interests. So there is a way forward, but governments will not take that way forward without pressure from the community. So this is where the grassroots action and, and the action of decision makers has to come together. We have to have a stronger community force which not only campaigns on climate and forestry and poverty and, and social injustice and, and water, but they also put some of their effort into working against and campaigning against the, those driving forces that are responsible for all these, these injustices. Uh, these social injustices, environmental destruction, and, and war-making. And, and perhaps in the discussion, I, I, I've run out of time, so I can't really talk about war, but I will have to say one thing. I'm not sure if you're all aware how the decision to cancel the French, nuclear, uh, French diesel submarines was made and how we've shifted suddenly to nuclear-powered submarines which are really not ideal for defending our coastline at all, but they are much more suitable for trying to contain China in the South China Sea. We now know that five or six so-called retired US admirals and senior members of the US administration were employed by our Defence Department since 2015 to advise them on future military hardware. Now that is state capture capture by the United States. And if people realised what was going on, I think they'd want not Australia to be captured, neither by the United States nor by the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party of China. Uh, all strength to Clive Hamilton in that regard. So I guess my final note is we have to resist capture capture by the vested interests and capture by the neoclassical economists, the bad ones, who are actually another force of state capture. So look, thank you and I apologise for talking too long. Mark, I, mean, I think you can all uh, hear and, and appreciate the, the, the expertise but also the passion that underpins uh, this book and, uh, and the, the, the long history of uh, uh, knowledge and learning and, and challenge, you know, really getting into those underlying issues that, uh, that are so fundamental um, to the, the things that we need to be thinking about and, and engaging with and continuing to, uh, to push forward on. I'm going to now introduce Rod Taylor. Um, again, Many of you may well know Rod already. Rod is a freelance science and, uh, science and technology writer, journalist and broadcaster. Uh, he has published a book called Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, which I would expect a number of you <laughs> obviously, um, uh, may have, uh, have read, uh, which tells the story of ten outstanding Australians who are confronting uh, the, the, the issues that Mark was just talking about. Uh, he's co-editor of the book Sustainability and the New Economics and uh, has a weekly science column in, and other articles in Fairfax and Australian community media. So I'll pass over to Rod. Well, uh, I just 
interesting that uh, Mark mentioned the AUKUS agreement, and that to me, I don't know if that's really what it was, but it has all the hallmarks of a thought bubble that became a strategic policy <laughs> uh, with help from uh, lobbyists and people in the industry. Well, welcome all. Thank you very much. And we've had a terrific turnout. We actually had to cap our bookings because uh, we had too many. And what a wonderful problem to have to solve. And I think the fact that you've all shown up uh, says a lot about the growing awareness of the sorts of problems that we talk about in this book. And, uh, and a big thank you to Thor and the team as well uh, for this fantastic venue, and Ray and uh, Richard for uh, uh, being our guest speakers. Now, we tend to imagine that right here and now is the most important thing. Everything revolves around now. But when you think about the history of this planet, we are the tiniest fraction of a sliver of a moment in the history of this planet. And it won't be long and we are all will be gone. So in that sense, we are insignificant. But in another sense, we are extremely significant because we are facing an extremely dangerous situation right now. And we are the last people alive, you and I and all the people we know, who can do anything to avert that situation. And I don't think it's quite crept into the public consciousness just how dangerous this moment is in history right now. Now, sometimes I like to do this little imagining, and you can do it during the boring parts of my talk, and that is, uh, what would a future archaeologist make of our time right now? If they dug back through the sedimentary layers, what would they find? Would be steel, glass, concrete, bitumen, plastic, face masks, the chicken bones? Yes, there are billions of chickens alive right now to feed an enormously growing human population. They would see a spike in atmospheric and oceanic carbon. They would see the sixth mass extinction. And all these things are markers of an entirely new geological epoch called the Anthropocene. Now, the impacts of we humans on this planet are going to last tens of thousands of years and maybe longer. Now that's enormously significant. Now, then I think, well, future archaeologists. What future archaeologists? There won't be a future archaeologist because there will never again be a global civilization like the one we have today. All the easy energy is now gone. All the easy resources are now gone. And those are the things you need to power a civilization. So in the book, we open with the metaphor of the Titanic. And of course, we all know the story of the Titanic, but we do that for a few reasons. And there are so many parallels to where we are today. And you can imagine down in the bowels of that ship, those workers shoveling, yes, how appropriate, coal into those giant furnaces. It would have been miserable down there, right? And then above them, the second, third, fourth class passengers sailing along, not doing too badly. And then on the top deck, the first class passengers enjoying the scene, the fine food, the beautiful wine, the service, luxury, but pretty much oblivious to their impending doom. Now we ask, why did the Titanic sink? 
well, it, oh, it hit an iceberg, of course. But let's ask the deeper question, and Mark has alluded to some of these things. Let's ask the deeper questions. This is really fundamental to why we wrote this book. We felt, yes, you can talk about renewable energy, climate change, burning fossil fuels, uh, but let's go down the, a deeper level. So why was Captain Edward Smith in the helm of that ship why was he sailing that ship far too fast? What he would have known were really dangerous waters. What caused him to do that? Well, one was an almost mystical faith in technology. Right? This ship is unsinkable. We cannot sink this ship, right? And we can solve all our problems with a few solar panels and a few wind turbines. Well, I don't think so. We need those things, but they are not going to save us. So, leaning over Captain Edward Smith's shoulder was the wealthy industrialist. And you know what he was saying? Faster, faster, more, more, spend more, consume more, use more, because there's no higher goal than profit. And look where that ended up. Uh, hang the risks. Don't worry about the risks because the risks are insignificant. I'm not even thinking about those risks. Well, look at what state capture is doing to us in neoliberal thinking. That's exactly the kind of outcome that that is promoting. Now, the economy won't die because people don't buy enough stuff the economy will die because we destroyed the environment. The economy will die because we stripped this planet of resources and glasses of wine. The economy will die because we stripped this planet of resources. And if we forget about social equality and justice, then society will die. And when society dies, the economy will die. And when the environment and society and the economy dies, civilization will die. Now, that's a pretty bleak message that I've just given you. But the other reason why we wrote this book is we wanted to think about how do we tackle this situation? What can we actually do? And I'm really pleased that Mark has given a few clues. But here's another one. Mark and I have joined up, we formed a partnership to write this book, and we have formed a small community. And Mark and I come at writing a book, we approach our writing from very different directions. And you can imagine the kind of challenges, oh Mark, that that entails. But Mark and I are deeply committed to the higher goal. And we have collaborated, we have compromised our positions uh, for things that can be compromised, of course. Uh, we have found a way to accommodate each other's opinions because we know that goal is what matters. Now, right here and now, today, each of us, we're all drawn together for a common purpose. We are here because we deeply care about the future of ourselves, of our children, our grandchildren, and of our species. And that is absolutely fundamental to addressing the problems that we have today. So now you've heard the protest slogan, there is no planet B. I'd like to modify that. There is no civilization B. Let's fix this one. Thank you.